Hello, and welcome to New Matter. I'm Mike Tarselli, and I'm the Scientific Director for SLES. Joining me today is Dr. Matt Hall of the NIH NCATS. Hi, Matt. Hey, how you doing? Hey, Matt, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do at the NIH. Yeah, thanks. It's a, a long-time SLAS conference attendee. It's great to join you and have a chat about assays. So I think if I had to describe myself in one word, it's assays, but obviously there's a lot more to it than that. NCATS is the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, and so we're, we're really the, the institute at NIH that's focused on, on understanding and solving challenges associated with drug development, translational science, and, and trying to find ways to improve the efficiency of drug development and improve the overall discovery and development rate of, of drugs. From a practical research point of view, we're part of what's called the intramural program at NIH. So we're a, a funded active research program that, that's based, in our case, in Rockville, but the entire NIH intramural program, you could describe as in the greater Bethesda area. And we're focused on team science. So we uh, have assay biologists, uh, automation specialists, medicinal chemists, chem informaticians, very much a historical small molecule emphasis in what we do. And we collaborate with people all over, primarily all over the United States, to develop assays and produce new tools such as small molecule probes to help people interrogate and understand understudied targets in biology with therapeutic relevance. That's awesome and amazing work and great for the country as a whole. Tell me how you came into this line of work. Um, is this something one chooses in grad school or is this something that you got into in a diagonal path? Definitely diagonal. I think I've personally always had an affinity for bringing instrumentation and approaches to biology that might not be as straightforward or embraced by everybody. Actually, my PhD is in chemistry, so I was always interested in, in therapeutics from a small molecule point of view, but became a biologist uh, accidentally, probably the way a lot of chemists become assay biologists. So I was making platinum compounds actually for cancer, and I said, okay, cool, now who do I give these to to test them? And they kind of, my PI pointed at me and said, you are. And oh. so I had to go and go to another building and learn how to become a, a cell biologist. And of course, it's a, it's a slippery slope and you start to realize if you can get that control over the biology and design the best possible assays, uh, you get a lot more out of that science. While I was doing that, I used um, synchrotrons, which are a, a large x-ray source that I'm sure <laughs> some of the people listening will know of, and, and using synchrotrons to actually study the fate of drugs within cells. And so I think bringing those pieces together is something that, that I found a, I enjoyed early on. And, and of course, the, the team science environment that the translational science embraces is just that story again and again and again. It's people with different disciplinary backgrounds working together to solve a problem they couldn't solve alone. Got it. So you had the whole run from inorganic synthesis through cell biology through physics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, people's eyes light Turned up. I say, I, I, my PhD was in chemistry and their eyes light up. And I say, and I was an inorganic chemist and then their eyes sort of go dead. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yeah. I feel you. So tell me a little bit about, I know that you as a national lab and also your lab in particular as a screening facility and as uh, assay biologists are very deep in, um, for context or in our listening audience, we are in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic as the SARS-CoV-2 virus goes around the planet. Um, you and I are speaking remotely, of course. Um, tell me about how your lab research and operations have changed fundamentally since uh, it came to the US, let's say in late January. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure if I knew in late January it had come to the US, but um, but I think that there was already some anticipation that that would be the case. So just to give you a sense of, of where things stand right now at the NIH Intramural Program, there's a mandated or effectively mandated telework operation in place. So most people are working remotely and most um, intramural lab operations are not taking place except for essential research. So for example, if you've had a 
two-year-long animal experiment, then they're not asking people to end that experiment now if it had another two years to go. Um, oh my! Yeah, there's so only one that, good way to end those, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, well, and there's no no good way. So, so for things that really need to continue, that's occurring. But most research has wound down. Now, the exception is is COVID nineteen related research, and like researchers across the United States, there are lots of groups at NIH with expertise in various areas that. They're taking and applying to, to COVID-19. And of course, there were no COVID-19 experts six months ago, probably not three or four months ago. So at NCATS, it's, it's a similar situation. And But in anticipation of COVID coming and being a translational science center, we'd started thinking about the assays that we could establish to sort of screen for new therapeutics. Because the one thing that we knew that everybody knows is that not only are there no COVID-19 therapeutics, so that the repurposing opportunities for drugs was going to be high. Uh, and the, well, the need was going to be high. There are also no approved therapeutics for coronaviruses generally. generally. We've had others that go into the community to a limited or larger degree, like the original SARS um, and MERS more recently, about eight years ago. But there were no therapeutics developed or vaccines developed through to completion there. And so we've been building a pipeline of assays. Some of them are, are protein-based or biochemical. Some of them are, are cell-based, obviously, and phenotypic. And we've been doing that to try and assay along the, the infection pathway of a virus cell, you know, going from, you know, recognition of ACE2 at the cell surface right through viral replication and, and exit from the cell. And by building this assay pipeline, we were hoping that A, we'd be able to do drug repurposing screening, which we are, and that we'd also be able to, to use those assays to test ideas and to test potential therapeutic candidates that other people are creating. And um, yeah, that's underway. So we have assay biologists who've successfully developed assays and completing drug repurposing screening and others that are very much on the drawing board or where we're trying to work out how to create the reagents that would be needed for targets that might be host human cell targets, but may not have gotten an awful lot of attention and all of a sudden are almost scientific household names. So tell me a little bit about this um, development of these diverse assays throughout the viral replication cycle, because I'm sure people, they've seen infographics, they see how this works, but they don't really have a, a maybe strong form of how this cascade goes in the brain. Can you describe very quickly from the type where it interfaces with ACE2 on the cell surfaces through replication, sort of maybe one or two stopping points or milestones along there that you have found targets that you can reliably assay? Oh, that's a, so that's a great question. So <laughs> knowing the pathway and, and assaying the steps in the pathway, I, I assure you are totally separate activities. Um, but, um, and, and so it's been interesting to try and, and, and sort of embrace those and, and learn. So, so the very first thing, that, that, and it's gotten a lot of attention, is you know, we know now that the spike proteins on, on COVID-19 and the spikes are the, what gives them the appearance of a crown that gives coronavirus the name because of the corona being the crown. And that, that interaction with ACE2 is critical. And, you know, I've got to be honest with you, I didn't know much about ACE2 or hadn't taken the time to learn about ACE2 before Myself, now. I, say right. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew it was part of the renin-angiotensin pathway and that it was potentially an important therapeutic target. It's not one that's drugged. But when spike binds with it, it's a biophysical interaction. And so you can imagine, for example, developing, which people are trying to do, antibodies that prevent the interaction of the spike protein with ACE2 to limit cell entry. Once that interaction occurs, we know now that there are a number of human proteases that are presented on the surface of the cell that, that cleave specific sites on the spike protein. They seem to trigger a conformational change that facilitates endocytosis of the virus. And once the, the virus has been endocytosed, it's an RNA virus. That RNA is present and it hijacks the transcriptional machinery to translate the translational machinery to create viral proteins. And, and that leads to the pathway for repackaging and building new viral particles for egress from the cells. 
So there are specific genes that are identified. So for example, I mentioned proteases. A, a little bit of attention has gone towards proteases like furin and, and temperus 2. They certainly haven't been plucked out of the air. And I think that for a lot of these targets, when you go back to the literature, the either SARS or MERS-related mechanistic virology research in 2000, around 2003 and around 2012 had, had identified those as playing a role in, in those cases as well. So in some ways, the targets were lurking there in the background. But assaying them is quite difficult. And in some cases, you know, Tempest 2, I'm sure tomorrow someone will publish a paper on it. But right now, you know, there isn't a, a really solid recombinant, a recombinant protein available with, with biochemical activity that we're aware of. And so that's something we know biologists are working on. ACE2, you know, you can imagine finding something that binds to ACE2 that might limit cellular entry. But if it inhibits ACE2, is that bad? I don't know. And no one knows, right? So I think that it's always a challenge. And at NCATS, we have always had an emphasis on studying understudied targets. But one of the challenges with an understudied target that you'd like to drug tomorrow is that it's understudied. And so there's a lot of threads of research biology and translational science that are taking place in, in parallel all the way from understanding the implications of, of drugging some of these targets and the side effects that might occur balancing that against the therapeutic opportunity for limiting the, the spread of the virus. So you discussed uh, some of the targets inside proteases, et cetera, and some of the exit machinery. I know that you and your group have also just released a preprint on remdesivir, which I believe, if oh, yeah. I'm right, is an RNA-dependent polymerase inhibitor. Yes. And I'm curious to hear about, you did sort of a historical recap on that and then provided some thoughts about its future use as a treatment. Given the context that you've now seen come out from the limited NIAID study and some of these sort of negative data that came out of China, can you speak a little bit about remdesivir as a potential therapy and other treatments that might be derived from it? Yeah. So there, there are definitely and, and certainly other drugs that are being developed against the same target. Um, so remdesivir is, is kind of interesting and, and it's gotten a, a lot of attention. It's a nucleotide analog and it's a prodrug actually. So it, and it's a prodrug to improve its cellular permeability. And it was actually developed initially generally as part of a screen, actually in collaboration with um, some federal government labs mm. um, to identify small molecules that were active against RNA viruses generally. And its mode of action is that it inhibits RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, which is absolutely... Um, critical for replicating RNA as part of the viral replication process. After it was developed, I'm, I'm not, it's, and it was by Gilead Sciences, its early clinical or discovery path isn't quite clear, but when Ebola came around, it, it looks like Gilead dusted off the discovery work that they'd been doing and tested remdesivir against Ebola. They found activity and they actually took it into clinical trials for Ebola. And ultimately, the, the, the data came out of that wasn't extremely strong, but, but when coronavirus emerged, uh, well, COVID-19 emerged, along with the fact that they were sitting on a, a fairly active small molecule across a range of different viruses, and they'd shown that in their early discovery work. They also uh, recognized in the literature there, was, there were papers showing that remdesivir was active in SARS and MERS models that are sort of the basic and translational literature. And so it was tested very early on, from what I can tell, in the, in the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as it was emerging and before anyone was allowed to call it a pandemic. And it showed activity, and, and uh, uh, Gilead launched trials in, in China and as we describe in the, the review we published, there are clinical trials worldwide. And it, it turned out last week that Tony Fauci, who's the director of NIAID, um, disclosed that there was some promising data. And based on that, I think FDA awarded an emergency use authorization last week. Sure. We try to avoid writing reviews whenever we can, but sometimes you just have to write one because the thing you want to read isn't out there at all. So, and you um, have to level set, right, for everyone. So right, it works. right, right. So what does it do? And more importantly, at a molecular level, how does it work? And um, we really couldn't find a clear sort of articulation of not just the molecular mechanism, but from a medicinal chemistry point of view, how it operates. 
Do you believe that you or do you have a collaborator who's currently working, um, perhaps it's Gilead itself, or perhaps it's an academic institution who are working on analogs of remdesivir itself to improve either the potency or the permeability or any other property? Or do you think that this is just a promising lead and other screens for repurposing are going to um, uncover new mechanisms and different shape molecules? There are undoubtedly other programs taking place looking at and tackling exactly the same target. And I know I saw that I know there's been at least one high impact publication with an alternative chemotype that was active against the same target. I think the primary challenge for remdesivir in terms of clinical implementation is quite just quite simply that it's administered IV. So you have to be quite unwell and in the hospital in order to receive remdesivir. And the literature that I've seen appears to mainly have focused on trying to generate not necessarily analogs of remdesivir, but candidate therapeutics that are orally bioavailable that patients could take earlier and from the outside the hospital system. Got it. I mean, that brings to mind the feeling of a, the Tamiflu analog, right? How can right. I reduce my, my flu symptoms and how can I get ahead of this thing through some sort of antiviral that doesn't actually perhaps uh, kill the virus itself or necessarily inhibit the, the sickness, but it does actually delay the onset or it uh, limits the symptoms. So yeah. that would be good even in the short term. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think that the end point that that was discussed for remdesivir last week in the clinical trial was um, days in hospital. Days in um, hospital. So right. as an endpoint, that I think mortality was also one of interest, but days in hospital was one, and that that's important in terms of availability of beds. Switching topics a little bit, but still on this uh, feeling of how your lab is coping with COVID-19, you said that essential work was taking place and some people were having to terminate their studies early. Tell me about how one teleworks into science. I know you obviously have automation and instrumentation at your will. However, it must be different to have to work a lab remotely. I mean, do you still have some skeleton crews that go in or is everything controlled through cloud services? How does this work? Yeah, actually, we, there's a, and cats like others are, have been exploring, um, you know, remote laboratory operations. Uh, we do have uh, scientists who spend time in the lab. And so from a lab operations point of view, we do what, what everybody else is, is trying to do. So best practices in terms of social distancing, wearing masks in the lab, we actually have a, a scheduler. So for the people who are cleared to go into the lab for X hours, it's only to do experiments. Unfortunately, if, you wanna, if you're writing papers or doing anything else, you, you do that all at home. And so with the scheduler, the, the aim is to limit, to minimize the number of people who are, who are in the lab at the same time. And, and I think there's rarely physical overlap at all, just one or two people in the labs. As two people who've done PhDs, the thought of yep. physically limiting the time you've ever spent in lab is anathema to me, but I understand the need. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. But it means that we get to do the, the most important science that we need to do right now. So I wouldn't say generally with the, the minimized lab operations that we've prematurely terminated research, but scientists were asked to end their experiments at a natural endpoint and wait to keep going again once we can all get back to whatever life looks like after this. I understand. Um, Tell me a little bit about what life will look like outside. So outside the COVID-19 bubble, I've taken note of your activity called Canvas, which to mm. my understanding was an open science collaboration amongst yourselves and several universities to look at the natural products that existed out there in the world and see what you could do with them if you all brought them together into one screening collection. Can you expand on that explanation and tell me about how you facilitated open science among all these different partners? Yeah, so the Canvas program is interesting and the, the name canvas came from just the idea of canvassing natural products broadly. So, you know, there are lots of high impact natural product discovery programs that go from extracts or fractions to bioactive molecules. But really what we were thinking about and have been recognizing is that there are lots of purified natural products out there that are produced in chemistry labs, either isolation labs, total synthesis labs, 
but they never really get tested the way they deserve to against biology because they come out of chemistry labs and, and outside a place like NCATS or the private sector, there aren't many environments where chemists and biologists are working in the same labs and operating on these sort of team principles. So what we thought we'd try, and it was, it was actually technically a pilot program, and we're going to have a, a larger version of this we're planning at the moment. But the goal was just to say, if you have a natural product, send it in and we'll compile a library and we'll run it against assays. And by assays, I mean anything that happened to be ongoing because of collaborative programs, as well as some standard assays we designed like cytotoxicity, counter assays, things like that. We had some antibacterial assays as well. And so we, we received, I think in the end, we received over 300 compounds for a pilot program that was pleasing and more than enough. And all of them were screened in dose response against almost 60 assays. And what we did is we, we created a, an, an open data portal so that people could, first, I think there was a, a quiet phase where people could look at their own data before anyone else saw it. But then we, we opened it up and, and, and so people could take a look at the, the bioactivity of these molecules. And, and there were a couple of interesting scientific follow-ups from that. So beyond screening, there are a few programs that are ongoing based on some of these natural products being active in, in specific assays. Wow. And, and yeah. the academics themselves must be quite pleased because, again, like you said, they would have been shelved or in the back of a freezer otherwise. Yeah. So it, it, that, then that, that was really the main goal. I mean, it's kind of sad to think of those lonely natural products sitting in freezers and never, never getting their moment to be tested. So that the plan at the moment is to launch, we're calling it 2.0, but to launch a, a larger version of this. As you know, we, we have automated screening platforms and, and a really great compound management group. So the idea would be to to create and format a library that just sits on our screening platform so that anything that gets assayed, this, this, this growing collection of crowdsourced natural products also gets screened and, and we find opportunities for molecules and solutions, solutions for individual diseases. We certainly love to help our academic and small business collaborators on this show. If people do have their own natural products that have not been sent in for Canvas 1.0, should they email you directly or will you have a website or an RFP about this? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. So we never went through the RFP route. Um, we, had a, we have a, a website for it. Maybe we can uh, link through your page later on. Certainly. But, yeah, if you search Canvas and NCATS in Google, you'll find it. Probably the only thing you'll find. So um, yeah, you can contact us through that webpage and, um, and make queries. And we have had quite a few queries. And so we, we've logged all of those. And we're hoping to relaunch the page for 2.0 soon and start advertising to, to receive submitted compounds. We actually ended up taking this Canvas open webpage and completely repurposing it. And we're in the process of making a, a COVID open science page so that all of that drug repurposing screening data can be shared with the scientific community through a COVID-19 NCATS data portal. Which is very useful and, and helpful at this time. So, I do have a, an interesting follow-up, which is, as you're a national screening facility, do you happen to get a lot of <laughs> unexpected packages full of unknown chemical matter? Because it seems like with academics sending you drugs for open science portals and with COVID-19 repurposing, that you must just get at least two or three packages a week saying, this is something we wanted to send you, please screen. <laughs> yeah, we, we do. But thankfully, there's always been a conversation in advance of the package. But yeah, we historically have collaborated on, in a way where people will come to us and say, look, I've got a therapeutic hypothesis. This is the disease I care about. This is the assay we've developed or the target we care about. And we, we collaborate with people with deep domain expertise on a specific science and either onboard their assay or work, collaborate with them to create an assay and, and screen it. We actually haven't run too many programs where people send things in, but that does happen. And um, we have a really outstanding compound management team, the kind of thing you would never find in academia that, but that you'd expect to find in any sort of biotech or pharma early discovery center. And they all get routed through there. And so we have um, you know really world standard uh, compound management program in place. That, it's kind of the, the hub for everything we do. You know, anything 
coming from medicinal chemistry or going to our assay centers or being shipped out to a third party all happens through our compound management. That's great. And that gives me some some solace to hear. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to finish up a little, I'd like to ask you a few more questions about you as a, as a scientist or a person. First, sure. and this could be COVID-19 or it could be anything else, what's the most exciting lab moment or professional accomplishment you've ever experienced? Wow. Well, that is a good question. Actually, I would say right now, I think that I've never seen people, and I'm not just saying it NCATS either, I'm saying it NIH and, and more, more generally, collaborate and not worry about whether they'll be on a paper or, or what position they'd have on the paper or... The you credit know. and the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so I, it's just been really encouraging to see scientists and, and clinicians and, and everyone else involved from a support point of view in making science happen, work together. And it's been really inspiring, actually. Given how terrible everything is that's and uncertain everything seems to be that's happening in the world with COVID-19, it's been so reassuring and, and exciting to see people try and work together to solve the problem. Thank you for that. Team spirit and in pursuit of a noble goal. I like that. The last question is, what tips do you have for younger scientists and engineers who are listening that are interested in automation and this overlap between tech and life sciences? What would you tell them to do right now? What would you tell them to get into or to learn? That is, that, well, that's a great question. So I guess invoking what I said at the beginning of the discussion, the first one is to, to embrace different and to, to try and find those collaborative or team-based science projects where you're not so fixated on, on where you, whether you'll be first author or not, but to find the kind of projects where you've got people working together from dif- different disciplines. And so if you're in a project, you know, a collaboration is great. It's people working together, but real team science is where nothing would happen if one member of the team wasn't there. And everybody's bringing genuinely different goals and perspectives and scientific expertise to a project. And I think if you can, can identify a, a couple of those projects early in your scientific career where you contribute, it can really, really transform the way you think about science. And so I, that, that, is, that is one thing that I think worked well for me. And I, and I think that constant spirit of collaboration and, and teamwork is one that would see people in good stead for their, their scientific careers. Got it. A spirit of constant collaboration and teamwork. I like it. Any last thoughts you want to leave us with, Matt? It's funny. I was thinking about something this morning, but I was getting ready to chat to you. Uh, my, my postdoc at, at NIH was, um, and at NCI was for a guy named Michael Gottesman who discovered the drug transporter peak like a protein. And a long time ago in the late 60s, um, he did his first research project with a guy named Bert Bally, who's a famous mechanistic enzymologist and assay biologist. So assays have existed forever. When I remember joining Michael's lab and I was showing some data and he said, have you, you, know, have you really demonstrated the rigor of this assay? And I said, oh, I think so. You know, yeah. And um, he said, it's an, an assay is only an assay if it assays. And uh, <laughs> the thing I think every day when I'm wandering through la- into lab is that an assay is only an assay if it assays. And um, I try to stick with those words every day because reproducibility and, and rigor in, in all translational science is, is so key. That's why I appreciate SLAS and, and the journals and, and, and the meetings and the, the scientific elements of those meetings because I think that it's probably the, the community that gets that the most. So I, I really appreciate the chance to talk to you today and, and talk a little bit about NCATS. Thank you. Very kind words. Good luck to you all and good luck in your quest against COVID-19. Thank you, Matt.